our text today is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would speak it to us today, that by your Holy Spirit you would open up to us understanding of your word and of your covenant with us uh, and how, how your word instructs and guides us in how to live in your covenant. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the book of Exodus is part of the Pentateuch. You may remember when we studied Genesis, the word Pentateuch is the five books. These are the books ascribed to Moses. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and without, the first thing we need to understand here is without Moses, there is no Bible. Okay? And this is, uh, now you might say, well, he only wrote five of the books, right? But all of the rest of the Bible depends on Moses. It all depends on him. It grows out of what God spoke through him. None of the rest of it makes any sense unless you understand these beginning books. Moses is telling a story of what God is doing in the world, and especially about how God is forming a people for himself in the midst of broken humanity. That is the story that Moses is focused on telling. He was right in the middle of it, 
and he is the one that God appointed to tell that story. Forming a people for himself, that is the idea of covenant. And as God's people, we need to really begin to get a better grasp on what covenant means, what God's covenant with his people means. Uh, and Moses is going to help us with that a lot. <clears throat> so, this is the story. This is our story from Genesis all the way through. Um, but uh, specifically, we're going to be focusing in the book of Exodus. But uh, I want to I catch us up here on the story that Moses is telling. Because remember, he wrote the whole book of Genesis as well, right? Even though he wasn't born yet, right? But he did write the whole book of, of Genesis as God instructed him. <clears throat> so let's just kind of sum up here. Uh, the creation, the whole creation account, God set the stage and he turned on the lights. All right? That's just kind of a summary. God set the stage and he turned on the lights. He gave mankind a mission. Right? Be fruitful. Um, multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is called the dominion mandate. Um, God says, take dominion over the earth. This is uh, the, the first mission of man. <clears throat> um, take dominion as good managers and make the earth orderly and fruitful. Okay, so there was work before the fall. Right? Work was part of our identity before the fall. <clears throat> take dominion, he says. This is still the core mission of humanity, but God has had to provide some clarification on that mission. Why? Because the question immediately came up, take dominion for whom? For whom are we taking dominion? Um, before the flood, everyone was taking dominion for himself. Right? I'm going to get my stuff. I'm going to take care of my life. I'm going to take care of my things and my people. And I'll kill you. <laughs> right? The earth was full of violence. The Lord said the earth is full of violence. Everyone is trying to take dominion for themselves. Right? There were maybe one, there was one person who perhaps wasn't, um, Noah. Uh, so before the flood, they were trying to take dominion, but they were taking it for themselves. After the flood, many of the people got together to take dominion. Not as individuals. They learned that lesson. Right? The flood wiped everybody out. Um, or, by the way, is it, is it going to take something like that again for people to learn about faithfulness to God, uh, living in covenant with Him? I hope not. I hope not. He said He's not going to flood the earth again. He didn't say there weren't, wouldn't be like intense times of trouble. <clears throat> and there have been. And there probably will be again. So after the flood, uh, the people... They at least learned they're not going to take dominion in their own name. What they did is they tried to take dominion collectively in the name of man. Remember that event? That's called the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel. Uh, they wanted to make a name for themselves, okay? So they said, look, we're supposed to take dominion, and obviously it's not, uh, you know, survival of the fittest out here. We're not supposed to be killing each other. Um, let's try to get together and make a name for ourselves. And, of course, that was not quite the right way either. Um, at least they weren't killing themselves, but they were making a name. They weren't killing each other, but they were trying to make a name for themselves. 
The Tower of Babel was the first United Nations project. The first United Nations project, the Tower of Babel. It was the original secular humanism, a prototype of what we see growing in the world today. Okay? Good, uh, do, doing good in the name of man. Uh, the famous uh, Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. <clears throat> um, that is a very unbiblical way of looking at things. So the big problem we, we understand after this Tower of Babel incident, the big problem for the world is not Satan. Right? Satan is hardly mentioned, in fact. The big problem in the world is not Satan, Satanism. You know, it's not, that's not the problem. Uh, it's not even uh, Islam, okay? Uh, that's not the big problem. The big problem is good people. That's the big problem the world faces today. Good people combined with the messianic state. The state that aims to be our savior. Okay? With government, a, a unity of people trying to do good as they define it. Not how God defines it, but trying to do good as they define it. Uh, to make a name for themselves. That is the big problem, and we still face that today. <clears throat> In fact, we still face both of these problems, the problem of uh, taking dominion for yourself. Everyone's out for their own interests, right? I'm going to get mine, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll kill you if, if I need to, sort of. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll get mine at almost any cost. Uh, and then uh, the, other, the other goal is... Um, you know, good, quote-unquote, good people getting together um, and trying to use the power of the state to make what they think is a good world, okay? Ignoring what God says is good. E pluribus unum. You all know this phrase? It's on our money, <clears throat> some of our money anyway. Uh, one out of many. It's the motto of the United States. One out of many. E pluribus unum. It is a unity of a unity in diversity. It is it's the same idea as the Trinity, okay? Unity and diversity. <clears throat> um, but we need to be clear about this. Any unity of man which does not recognize Christ as the center of that unity is in rebellion against God. We need to be very clear about this. Any unity of man which does not recognize Christ as the center of that unity is in rebellion against God does not merit the allegiance of Christians. I hope we're clear about that. Of course, we need to recognize and give thanks for all good things. We need to give honor to whom honor is due. We need to be respectful. We need to remember the faith of our fathers in action. It is good to honor people who have made sacrifices for others. Very important. And we do not diminish that at all. And it is also good to obey authorities. So all of these things are good. But uh, suppose the organizers of the Tower of Babel required a Pledge of Allegiance. Would we participate in that? Challenging. Rome and Nazi Germany both required Pledges of Allegiance. Um, they were also, they were both Tower of Babel uh, operations. Okay, so I say all this 
to point to this idea of covenant as God's answer to this problem of the one and the many. Covenant is God's response to the problem man has of taking dominion. We think it's either I take dominion in my own name or I take dominion in the name of united humanity defining good for itself. But God says, no, you take dominion in my name. I'm the king, you take dominion in my name. Okay, And that is the structure, that's the idea behind covenant. God put an end to the Tower of Babel, 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 however you want to say it. Hmm, how should we say it? See, because of the Tower of Babel, we don't know how to say it. Um, all the tribes and peoples began to spread out. Remember that after the Tower of Babel. Uh, Japheth, Shem, and Ham spread out. Sons of Noah, Europe, Asia, Africa. Um, among Ham's descendants, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Um, Canaan. The Canaanites and the Egyptians are descendants of Ham. So between the flood and Abraham, there were 300 years. And during that time, the people of Mizraim, which is the biblical name for Egypt, um, built a culture on the Nile River. And there they built their miniature towers of Babel. Okay? Uh, there are pyramids out there. Uh, these are echoes of the Tower of Babel project. So they, they figured, well, we, we couldn't do it there, but maybe we can do it here. Okay? Maybe we can come down on this great river here and uh, things will go better. And so they did build, build all their, their uh, pyramids there. Like I said, the Canaanites and the Egyptians descended from Ham. The Hebrews and the Midianites, and these are all people that are mentioned in our text, they descended from Shem. Okay, So you've got descendants of Ham and descendants of Shem, and uh, they are occupying some of the same space. About 300 years after the flood, God spoke to a man, a man, a man named Abram. Um, by the way, God spoke to about seven people in 3,000 years. Right? So we shouldn't feel too bad if God doesn't speak to us directly. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Seven people in 3,000 years. So uh, don't get too hurt. Don't get your feelings too hurt if it's not you. If he's not speaking to you directly. He is still speaking. He speaks through his word. But uh, he doesn't speak to everyone like he spoke to these people. Just as with Noah, God established his covenant with Abraham and promised to make his descendants into a great nation and to bless all the nations of the world through him. Remember, God's idea of covenant is an answer to the problem that man has with taking dominion. Okay? Taking dominion in, in their own name, taking dominion uh, in the name of uh, united humanity. Uh, both of those are incorrect. God's response is covenant, and he says, look, here's how it's done. And he grabs Abraham. Okay? So that's where this whole thing with covenant is going. He grabs Abraham and he says, look, I'm going to build you into a great nation. Okay? There was nothing in Abraham that was extra special. Okay? God, it was God's grace and God's will. It's his sovereign choice that he chose Abraham. 430 years later, Moses sees a burning bush and goes to check it out. How's that for a summary? Right? <laughs> Okay, 430 years later, and he told, God told Abraham, remember? He said, your children, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. They will, they will suffer there 400 years, and then I'm going to lead them out. Okay, so God promised that, 
as part of his covenant, his people, at least some of them, would still remember that. <clears throat> so a few reminders here. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters in it. Um, about half of them are uh, used to describe the Exodus itself, and about another half to detail the covenant that God makes with them at Sinai. <clears throat> um, Moses seems to be very focused on this idea of covenant because he really only spends two chapters uh, out of all the 40 for the first 80 years of his own life. Okay? doesn't tell us a whole lot about his own life at all. 80 years of his life passed and uh, really uh, just in chapter 2. Right? Just in chapter 2 of Exodus, uh, 80 years of Moses' life. Um, and uh, like I said last week, or week before, um, Moses' life can be conveniently divided into three 40s. Okay, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years in the Exodus. 40, 40, 40. He lived to be 120, as Deuteronomy 34, 7 says. Remember that Amenhotep had given the order to kill the babies, and Moses was saved and raised by Hatshepsut in the house of Pharaoh. When he was 40 years old, he killed an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave. He was trying to set the Hebrews free. Right? He was trying, it was his first failed attempt to liberate uh, the Hebrews. Thutmose uh, II was planning to execute Moses for this crime, but Moses fled to Midian. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham too, though not through Isaac. They seem to have uh, gradually slipped away from observing the ways of Abraham, but uh, Reuel, also known as Jethro, continued to be faithful and served as perhaps the last faithful priest of Midian. He rejoiced to see Moses, and Moses stayed in Midian for 40 years. Probably would have stayed in Midian the rest of his life. He married Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and they had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. As I said, Moses probably would have stayed in Midian the rest of his life. Um, there are many clues in the text that suggest this. Exodus 3 and 4, uh, is, and part of 4, is a conversation between God and Moses. Uh, throughout the conversation, Moses is face-to-face -face with a burning bush. Uh, throughout the conversation of chapter 3 and part of 4, Moses is simply face-to-face -face with a burning bush. <clears throat> this is not a random image. The scene is packed full of meaning and message. So let's dive in. <clears throat> All of Exodus is set within the context of covenant. God hears, sees, knows, and remembers his covenant. Um, at the end of chapter 2, if you would turn with me there, end of chapter 2 in Exodus, uh, verses 23 and 24, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So a lot of emphasis on, in there on God uh, knowing his covenant. He understands that he has an obligation to his people. He's made some promises, and God knows, he remembers. Uh, also in chapter um, 3, our text today, if you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 6, 
He tells Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are covenant names. Um, He says in verse 7, I am the God of my people. And in verse 10, also, my people. I am going to set my people free. So he, God recognizes that he is going to respond to his people um, as their covenant Lord. Moses wants his readers to know that everything that has happened to Israel and that is going to happen to Israel is all within God's covenant with Abraham. Everything that's about to unfold, everything that has happened up to this point, it is all within God's covenant with Abraham. The 400 years of sojourning in a land not their own, the many years of slavery in Egypt, the harsh treatment from the Egyptians, God sees, God hears, God knows, and he remembers. It is, in fact, because of his covenant that the people of Israel can cry out to him. So I want us now to take a moment um, and uh, the text we looked at today earlier in the liturgy was Psalm 89. I want to turn your attention there for a minute because it's a good place to see uh, this kind of use of the covenant by someone with uh, a heart on fire. So um, Psalm 89, uh, in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says, You have said, God, Lord, you have said, Um, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. All right, so the psalmist reminds him of this. And then uh, in verses 20 through 37, um, he just kind of describes some of the detail. Okay, In in case, Lord, you, you need to be reminded of the details of this covenant, you made some serious promises um, to establish him forever, um, to strengthen his arms. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. Uh, I'll crush his foes before him. Strike down those who hate him. Okay, he goes on and on, and he says, look, th- these are the details of the covenant you made, Lord. Right? What he's doing is he's knocking down God's door, going, hey, remember this? remember this? That's pretty bold, right? (laughs) To go to God and say, have you forgotten your covenant? Okay? Uh, And he can do this. And look at verse 38, though. He details the glories of the covenant, uh, how, how wonderful it all is. You made all these great promises, God. Verse 38. But now... Now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. It feels like that. God hasn't renounced his covenant, but it feels like he has. And the psalmist is just letting God know, what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. We can bring these these kinds of petitions to the Lord to remember his covenant because his covenant promises are rich. They're full of glory. He has promised that the, the gates of hell would not prevail 
against his church. Do we need to remind God of that? He knows it. We're going to understand this a little bit better here. Um, however, I, I wanted to point to that because it is a good indication that the people can cry out to God on the basis of his covenant. That is the only reason that they're able to cry out to God is because he is their God. He is their covenant Lord. If he isn't, then they've got nothing to stand on, right? They have no relationship. But it's like you asking, it's like a child asking somebody else's dad for ice cream. Okay? <laughs> it's not how this works. Not how this works. <clears throat> God, ex I want to suggest to you, God expects this. The reason the psalmist can do this is because God expects it. He set it up this way. God does not expect us to sit passively by while disaster reigns. Okay? He's, um, the psalmist stands on God's promises and he knocks God's door down. <clears throat> it is not faith to appeal to the sovereignty of God and say, it's God's will. Well, it is God's will. All that happens is God's will. Um, Joseph being beat up and thrown in a well. That was God's will. That got him to Egypt in the first place, right? Uh, and all of their suffering in Egypt. That's God's will too. Uh, what's going on? So we call out to God. What are you doing, God? But God set this up. We need to understand. God set this up and he did it deliberately. Because you can't have faith and fatalism. Right? You can't just sit by and go, oh, it's God's will. And not be grieved at it. Not be bothered. Okay? Faith is contrary to fatalism. Faith requires you to go, yeah, I know you're sovereign. That's why I'm asking you to fix it. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Faith does not sit by passively and go, it's God's will. I won't do anything. I don't need to ask God for help. I, you know, it's just God's will. Um, that's fatalism. The faith that God calls us to is not fatalism. Uh, he puts us in these situations. He sets the bush on fire so that we can appeal to him, so that we will appeal to him. Okay? <clears throat> that's important. God sees, God hears, God knows. God planned for the captivity in Egypt, for the slavery. He told Abraham, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. Your children, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. And he didn't say it this way, but it's because of me. I'm going to make them slaves in Egypt. <clears throat> I'm going to set the bush on fire. <clears throat> he said he would redeem them and bring them back to the land. And yet, as he tells the story, he describes it as him responding to their cry for help. He said he was going to do it, right? I'm going to do this. Not only am I going to make you slaves in Egypt, I'm going to set you free too, okay? I'm going to set you free. And then when he tells the story, he says, I'm responding to their cry for help. That's a mystery, isn't it? God says, I'm going to do something. And then he does it because they cried out for help. 
uh, verse 7 of our text. The Lord, this is verse 7 from chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. As his covenant people, he wants us to actively come back to him. He wants us to cry out to him, to appeal to him, and to call on him for help. Okay? This is the context of the story of the Exodus. God doing what he said he was going to do and doing it in response to their cry. Doing what he said he was going to do and doing it in response to their cry. So the text, let's go to Exodus 3 here, to the beginning of the text. And uh, it has a troubled start. Okay, so chapter 2 ended with them crying out for help, right? Crying out to the Lord for help. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. <clears throat> Forty years. Forty years. Not four. Forty years after his failed attempt at liberation. He killed the Egyptian 40 years ago. God's chosen redeemer is tending the sheep of a Midianite priest in the backside of the desert. He's nowhere near God's people, relatively speaking. He's, he's out in the middle of the Midianite desert. Okay? Um, why, as Moses said, he fled. <clears throat> God's people had rejected him. Who made you prince and ruler over us? Oh no, the thing is known. I gotta get out of here. <clears throat> What God is doing here in Genesis, uh, Exodus 3, I'm determined to make it Genesis. Uh, in Exodus 3, uh, the beginning of Exodus 3, is he is grabbing Moses' attention. And how does he do it? Burning bush. A bush that is on fire and yet is not consumed. Now, I imagine uh, a wounded cricket might attract your attention in the backside of the desert. You are so bored. Right? I'm like, I wish there was something to do. I got a cell service. I wish there was something to do here. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, it wouldn't have taken much, probably, to attract his attention. God gives him a burning bush, right? Tree up on the hill, and it's burning, and it doesn't seem to be consumed. It's been burning for half an hour now. <clears throat> um, so he says he's going to go check it out. What I want to suggest here today is both the burning bush and the words that God speaks are, are meant to grab Moses' attention and bring him back to his people. Moses, I think, would have stayed in Midian the rest of his life. He, he, I don't think he was connected with his mission. He, he, he thought, he's done. He made his attempt. Because uh, he's 40 years after the first, you know, if he's not going back to Egypt after 40 years, and he's 80 years old, he's probably not planning to go back to Egypt. <clears throat> uh, here he is, uh, seeing this burning bush. So before we get to the burning bush, I want to talk about the words that God uses to address him. <clears throat> um, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush, and then God spoke to him. So God, God sees he's, he's up there looking at the bush, and then God says, Moses... 
And Moses said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. <clears throat> God identifies himself to Moses. Moses, does, as far as we know, Moses had not heard from God, right? God had not spoken to him. And remember, God had only spoken to seven people in 3,000 years, right? Uh, of course, they all knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Uh, he's only, what, three generations away from Jacob, four generations away from Jacob. Um, but uh, so he says, he identifies himself to Moses. Who? I am the God of your father, um, God of your father Abraham, God of your father Isaac, the God of your father Jacob. This is a covenant identity. I am the God of the covenant. I am the one who started the covenant. Okay, That's who I am, and I'm talking to you now. God identifies Moses, in, Moses himself. Not only does God identify God himself as, in relation to the covenant, he identifies Moses in relation to the covenant. So he says, this is who I am. I want to remind you who you are. Okay, I am the God of, the, of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You... You're in relation to them too. I am the God. I am the God of your father, Abraham, your father, Isaac, and your father, Jacob. Not just these are not just men from the past. They are your fathers. Okay, you are part of this covenant, Moses. God seems to really want to emphasize this to Moses. Um, why would Moses need to be? related to the patriarchs? Why does God need to, to connect Moses to the patriarchs? Well, here he is, like I said, 40 years after um, leaving Egypt, uh, sort of abandoning his, his people back in Egypt, right? All the Hebrews are, are living in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And he is out here married to the daughter of a Midianite priest. Right? He's not even married to someone inside of the covenant group. Right? He is uh, he's married to the daughter of a Midianite priest. He is living apart from God's people. And he's apparently falling away from covenant faithfulness. Take a quick look over to chapter 4. I don't know if you've ever read this before, but it's very intriguing. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 24 and 26. So this is where Moses is now. He's already agreed. Hey, I'll go back and speak to Pharaoh, okay? I'll talk to Pharaoh just like, like you said, Lord. Um, so at a lodging place on the way, on the way back to Egypt, he's heading to, back to Egypt. He's got his, his wife, Zipporah, and his two sons, and they are heading back. He may only have one of his sons. I'm not sure. But anyway, they are heading back <clears throat> on, uh, at a lodging place on the way. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. He just, he just prepared Moses to go and, and set them free. I'm calling you to set my people free. And Moses goes, okay, I'm going. And then the angel at, at a lodging place, it's almost like the angel of the Lord is sort of lurking around outside the inn, right? 
It's gonna, I'm, I'm getting ready to go in and kill you. <clears throat> um, the lodging place on the way, the Lord sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Moses had not circumcised his son, Gershon. What is circumcision? It's the sign of the covenant, isn't it? That's, circumcision was the sign of that covenant, and Moses had not given it to his son. Does that tell you something about how Moses is thinking? Right? This, I'm living in Midian. I was rejected by the people I tried to save. I'm now living here. I've been here for a long time. Things are pretty comfortable. I'm taking it easy. We're having drinks at the end of the day under the terebinth tree. Um, and I've got, I got my wife here. And, uh, you know, all is well. And he is not paying attention to the covenant sign. He did not give his son the sign of the covenant. God apparently thought it was pretty serious. You think God could have found somebody else? He said, i got to kill Moses now, so I guess I'll find somebody else. Well, he would have, but that wasn't, that wasn't in the story. But he, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill him. And Zipporah, his wife, his wife says, look, you're supposed to do this, dummy. Right? You're supposed to do this. Pay attention to the covenant. Um, and so they, the Lord leaves him alone. Okay, I'm not going to kill you now. But you see what's going on with Moses. He has become disconnected from his people. They rejected him, so he rejected them. Right? We need to be careful of that. I venture to say someone might have told you that you're crazy. Um, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you here on a Sunday? Why do you do what you do, and why do you do it like you do it? People are not, some of God's people are not going to agree with us. Some of God's people are going to um, be opposed to what we're trying to do. Uh, they're going to reject us. And what is our response? Would our response be like that of Moses? Well, you reject me, so I'm rejecting you. I'm going to get out there. I'm, I'll leave you guys alone. All right? No. They are still God's people, and they hear his prayers. He hears their prayers. Okay? God hears their prayers, uh, even uh, if they don't particularly like us very much. Okay? Um, but this is what's going on with Moses. This is why God needs to grab Moses' attention. And remind him, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> Forty years ago, they rejected him. His attempt to redeem his people was rejected. Jewish tradition suggests that Moses questioned their worthiness for redemption. Okay, the, the Jewish uh, commentators on this text suggest that Moses was questioning their worthiness for redemption. Like, hey, I tried, and... <laughs> They're just not worth it. Right? I'm not saving these people. I'm not going to help. <clears throat> so Moses had rejected them. And God is shaking him back to an awareness of who he is. 
Now this is similar. Um, I don't know if you remember back in Genesis 38, the story of Judah uh, and how he leaves, uh, he leaves from God's people. Take a quick look right there. I'm just going to kind of summarize, but I want you to know where it's at and, and what's going on because it's very similar to what Moses is at, what's happening with Moses. Genesis 38. This is stuck in the middle of Joseph's story. So Joseph has just been um, sold into slavery into Egypt in Genesis 37. Um, all that's just happened. <clears throat> and Judah appears to kind of be psychologically affected, if I may say so, psychologically affected by all that. Yeah, we beat our brother up, sold, <laughs> threw him in a well. We were going to kill him, but then we sold him into slavery in Egypt. So things are pretty bad in the, in the Jacob family, you know, in, in the family of Israel. And so Judah does this in 38 verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. He went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Yira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son called his name Ur and another one named Onan. Uh, the Hebrew here emphasizes that he went away from his people. Judah leaves his people. It's a strange place because we have, it's right in the middle of the Joseph story. This, this whole chapter about um, Judah and Tamar um, is a little diversion because uh, you have Joseph going into slavery, then you've got this, and then you go back to Joseph and Potiphar's wife and the whole famine story, the cupbearers and all that. Everything else is about Joseph's story. But Joseph's story is interrupted by this thing with Judah and Tamar. Tamar is his uh, daughter-in-law, by the way. Um, Judah, basically, uh, Tamar ends up having to dress up as a prostitute, and, um, and Judah sleeps with her, and, uh, and there's trouble there. It's, it's a mess, if you remember Gen Genesis 38. It's a real mess. But she manages, what, something she does at the end manages to get his attention. Right? That's a shocking way to have to your attention grabbed. Okay? But it is because Judah goes back to his people. From after that situation, Judah goes back to his people and he becomes a leader again among the Israelites. Okay? Um, but it takes that kind of situation. So that's what's happening here with Moses. The same thing is going on. Moses has left. Uh, he's abandoned his people. And God grabs him and says, look, i got a mission for you. <clears throat> um, we need to learn this lesson like I said um, when people reject us we should not be rejecting them also uh, they are God's people and he hears their prayers not only does God use his words here to grab Moses' attention but he also uses the burning bush okay? the burning bush is not a, a useless symbol it's a, it's a powerful symbol the fire is God of course <clears throat> um, but it is also suffering the fire is many things. Okay? The way God works with symbols is uh, they, they're usually multifaceted. Okay? So yes, the fire is God, uh, but the fire in another sense is also suffering. I'll try to explain a little bit of that. The bush um, is God's people, um, and it is also this, this place. Horeb, um, the mountain of God, as the text says, um, it was not the mountain of God before, uh, before this incident. Moses is writing this afterwards. And he's saying, you know, this is, Horeb is the mountain of God because that's where God appeared 
But not only that, they're going to come back here to worship, right? God tells him that um, at the end of our reading today. He says, it's going to be a sign for you. Moses says, you know, who am I? And he says, well, um, this, this will be a sign for you. Um, when you leave Egypt, um, you will bring the people here, you know, serve God on this mountain. They come back there to receive, um, to be formed as God's people to receive the law. Um, Sinai uh, is, is very close, I'm told very, very close to the word, uh, Hebrew word for bush, Sinai. Okay, Mount Sinai, Mount Bush, Mount, Mount Burning Bush. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to come back here to worship. Deuteronomy 4, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 11 through 12, I don't my glasses there. Um, Moses says this, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Moses reminds the, the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy near the end of his life. Um, he reminds them of their experience at the mountain, that there was a fire on the mountain and the mountain was not consumed. The mountain is a giant burning bush. Okay? It's, it's, he, what he does to the, for the people of Israel, he does to Moses first. There's a little burning bush here. I'm going to talk to you from the bush. And then you're going to bring the people back here, and I'm going to talk to them from the mountain, okay, a burning mountain. It's, so there's the burning bush, the burning mountain, they're the same thing. And uh, later on in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, 32 through 33, he says, he's again appealing to the Israelites, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? No. The answer is no. Never. But it happens to Moses first as the burning bush. The Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. But those with whom he dwells are not consumed. Those with whom he dwells are not consumed. Fire refers to God and his presence among his people. We see that also in Pentecost, the flames of fire uh, above the uh, apostles' heads. <clears throat> uh, it also refers to the suffering of God's people. Um, so in another sense, Egypt is like the bush and the fire is suffering. Israel in the bush um, and the fire of suffering, okay? Uh, not only is this, this imagery about God's covenant, but it's also about God's people um, enduring suffering. How do we do this? And how do we endure suffering? In 1583, okay, not ancient 1583, but 1583 A.D., um, 11 years after St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, this was the massacre of the Huguenots in France, so 11 years after that massacre, the, the Huguenot Church is uh, having a synod, a gathering, um, and one of the things they are doing there is deciding on a seal, symbol, 
for their church. And what do you think, what symbol do they choose? The burning bush. They chose the burning bush. Um, suffering, God's people um, in the midst of suffering. <clears throat> they were a persecuted church. Calvin says the fire of persecution is in the church, but the church is not consumed. The fire of persecution is in the church, but the church is not consumed. Moses sees a bush wrapped in fire, but not consumed. Israel is in Egypt, but they are not consumed. Israel should not survive. It's not natural. <laughs> it's not natural that Israel is surviving in the midst of its suffering. And yet they are not surviving. They are being fruitful and multiplying. Not only are they surviving, they are growing. But they do cry out to God because of their suffering, and he hears them, and he will deliver them. And the same is true for us, for we too are Israel. You will walk through the fire and not be consumed. It doesn't mean you won't feel the heat doesn't mean you won't feel the heat. It doesn't mean there won't be some pain. But you will walk through the fire and not be consumed. <clears throat> we are to cry out to the God who sees, who hears, and who remembers his covenant. He plans to deliver us. We do not know when or how, but he will hear our prayers and respond. <clears throat> Again from uh, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I don't know this then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their masters, the taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It is true for them, how much more for us? I think Jesus, Jesus says, I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them not out of the hands of the Egyptians necessarily, but he has come down to deliver us. So we can give thanks uh, even more so. Um, we have Jesus interceding for us with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you that you have made us part of your covenant. Um, members, citizens of your kingdom. And we know that we can cry out to you for help. Father, and we, and we pray that you would you hear us, Lord. We know that you hear us. Um, we do cry out to you, Lord, uh, to change us and to change this world, uh, restore to us the glory that you, you once, uh, your kingdom once experienced and, and once knew, the glory that your name deserves. Strike down your enemies, Father, and raise up your people. We thank you for your word today, Father. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.